Good afternoon and uh, welcome on behalf of the Hudson Institute. I am Hussain Haqqani. I uh, direct the South and Central Asia program here at Hudson Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to have a very strong panel today uh, as part of our efforts to try and understand uh, the region uh, that spreads all the way from Afghanistan uh, to Bangladesh. And the 1965 war was a very special uh, occasion in the history of India and Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, then only 18 years uh, old, uh, took on India, a neighbor much larger than itself, with a military much larger than itself. Uh, in a war uh, that 50 years later uh, is still celebrated in Pakistan as uh, the Defense Day of Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani account varies very much from the Indian account, the most interesting thing being that from the Indian perspective, the war started on the 6th of August 1965 uh, when Pakistan sent infiltrators across uh, into Indian controlled parts of Kashmir. From Pakistan's point of view, the day of the start of the war is the 6th of September, a month later, when India crossed the international boundary into Pakistan. Uh, recently, when India announced that it would celebrate its victory in the 1965 war um, uh, on its 50th anniversary, uh, Pakistanis responded by celebrating the victory in the war themselves. As most of us probably agree, wars actually have no victors. There are more losers in wars than victors. But wars between two protagonists certainly don't end in the victory of both. Um, in some ways, it is a microcosm a small example of the difficulties of India and Pakistan and their relationship. Uh, of course, uh, Clausewitz said that war is a continuation of policy by other means. So a war should be viewed in the context of policy objectives attained or not attained by either side, not only in terms of the valor and sacrifice of the soldiers, which has been a major issue in Pakistan. People think that any criticism of the uh, policies relating to the war somehow constitutes a criticism of the soldiers who bravely fought in the war. That's not the case. In this country, people have disagreed with almost every war that America has fought, but that does not mean that those disagreeing with those wars and the policies surrounding them uh, do not respect America's brave soldiers. And I think the same should apply in Pakistan and across the border in India. So to discuss the 1965 war, what has changed in India-Pakistan relations 50 years since this major encounter, uh, apart from two further wars, one in 1971 and one in 1999. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Stephen Cohen, senior fellow from Brookings Institute's India Project, who I think I can fairly describe as the uh, doyen of the uh, India and Pakistan and South Asia watchers in Washington, D.C., uh, now, of course, Steve will quip, and I will deprive him of that quip right now, that, you know, uh, as deans grow older, they lose their faculties. Uh, that does not apply in his case. He is very much our dean. He is very much the man uh, in Washington that everybody goes to to try and understand a region. Those of us who come from that region don't fully understand. Uh, next on the panel is uh, Mr. Shuja Nawaz, a dear friend and uh, colleague. He's a distinguished fellow uh, from Atlantic Council South Asia Center 
and the author of uh, perhaps one of the best books on the Pakistani military titled uh, Crossed Swords, uh, Pakistan, its army, and the wars within. And at the far end of this podium is Colonel retired John Gill, who is Associate Professor for Near East and South Asia at the NISA Center at National Defense University. Colonel Gill is also the author of the 1971 India-Pakistan War, an atlas, and has been connected with the region as a foreign area officer in the US Army and has worked on South Asian issues uh, with the Pentagon. So I'll request each one of the panelists uh, to uh, address uh, what they deem to be the most important and significant aspect of the 1965 war and its lasting legacy for India-Pakistan relations. Uh, Professor Cohen, why don't you go first? Thank you. Thank you, Hussain, Ambassador Khani. Um, for the invitation to speak to this group and others, um, and also be, to appear at the Hudson Institute. Hudson is important for me because when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago many years ago, I heard uh, Herman Kahn speak, and that helped persuade me to get out of the nuclear proliferation business, because I was unpersuaded by Kahn's book and by his arguments. So I actually shifted to become an area specialist. Of course, nuclear weapons have caught up with me as I went to South Asia. Uh, nuclear weapons appeared there in the, in the uh, you know, slowly in the 70s and 80s and 90s to the point that India and Pakistan are among the major nuclear weapon states in the world. Uh, let me make about five points and uh, make them briefly and then others, others can speak. The 1960s, I spent much of the 60s in South Asia, although I did miss the war, for better or for worse. It was probably the most eventful decade in South Asia after, after, after partition. Uh, uh, there was a war between India and China. There was a war between India and Pakistan. China tested nuclear weapons. Nehru died. Indian succession was, was confused. And then, of course, the 65 war led to changes in Pakistan, which were profound. Uh, secondly, uh, the decisions made to start the war, or get into the war, I think, were on Pakistan's part, were largely mis misguided. They misestimated the, the, the likelihood of an uprising in Kashmir, I think they misestimated or underestimated Indian resolve. They estimated the military balance between the two countries. And then I think they misestimated their allies' support, both China and the United States. So in a sense, there are a lot of misjudgments, miscalculations, on the part, especially on the part of Pakistan. India was confused. But Pakistan did understand that it really needed a war then because India was building up with American aid, I think they, I think that, which I think was one of the factors that precipitated the war. Thirdly, um, um, uh, the Pakistanis, uh, yeah, I, uh, we were asked to answer the question, could there be another 1965 war? My answer is yes and no. Yes, in that the mistakes made by the Pakistanis in particular, uh, including uh, the notion of Bengalis being a non-martial race, and I think misjudgment of Indian, Indian will and capabilities, uh, those kinds of mistakes could be repeated. And the mistakes might be the might made by the Indians also could be repeated. I've written a book, Four Crises in a Peace Process, with Indian and, China and Pakistani scholars. And in every major India-Pakistan crisis, after the, before and after they went nuclear, there was a serious failure of intelligence. Uh, failure of intelligence by the Indians, by the Pakistanis, by both, and also by the Americans. And in a sense, nobody got it right. So in the notion of looking ahead, 
and assuming that the present stability between India and Pakistan will continue is, I think, uh, absurd. You know, it, it's, it's, I think it's, an, it's not an assumption that I, that I would make. On the other hand, uh, the answer is no, there won't be a war because the fact that both country, each country can, can kill 50 to 100 million citizens of the other country I think makes war improbable in a sense they've achieved the state of mutual assured, deter mutual assured deterrence. And as in the case of the United States and, um, and the Soviet Union, there will always be people like Herman Kahn, for example, who will argue there's a way to have a war. Even if, if, even if 100 million people are killed, we can still have victory. That echoes Mao Zedong's argument. If the Americans and the Soviets were to have a war, there would still be 200 million Chinese left over. To me, that's not, that's not, to me, that's madness of a particular kind. Uh, and it could, it, it could infect South Asia. I'm not saying it has or it will, but I've just published a book called uh, India-Pakistan, Shooting for a Century. And I argue basically that there's going to be a century of conflict between the two countries, 1947, 2047. I don't see any resolution to the dispute. Finally, let me make a point, uh, ask the question, are they better off now than if they w would have been had they not fought a war? I think the answer is no. India, South Asia is the most third most violent region in the world. Uh, it's also the least economically integrated region in the world. Had they not had a war, had there been normalization, I think that process of normalization, I think there'd be a much different region. And both India and Pakistan would have been better off than they are now. Let me, let me stop at that point. And wow. Uh, uh, that, that, that was both brief and profound, uh, Steve. Thank you very much. Um, Julia? Thank you very much, Ambassador Hakani, and I'm honored to be part of this august panel of experts uh, on whom I've relied for guidance and uh, assistance even when I was working on my book. So I must acknowledge that at the be beginning. Also, uh, a number of people in the audience uh, who have done research in this area. So I think it should be a very interesting conversation. Uh, let me start by, by putting my priors out there. Um, and those are that I, I don't believe that uh, war is a solution, I think, uh, particularly in South Asia. Um, and I don't believe that it is wise for either India or Pakistan to celebrate wars. Um, uh, if anything, uh, this should be a, a marking uh, a ceremony where you acknowledge that a conflict took place and you acknowledge the people that gave their lives, as Ambassador Haqqani alluded, you acknowledge the sacrifices of the individuals on behalf of their countries. But to celebrate war, I think, uh, manages to put, uh, and particularly to, to um, do damage to history and to facts by celebrating victories when victories are hard to define um, uh, is uh, a challenge. Um, in my view, uh, wars are the consequence of the failure of politicians and of politics. And the 65 war is a great example of that. Uh, the military can and, and should only implement national policy, and it should not set national goals that are beyond its ken. Um, for those that are interested in the details of this war, uh, I would suggest you, you look at chapter 9 in my book, which deals with the 65 war. But um, following three chapters, 10, 11, and 12, um, have a similar title of uh, Wars and Consequences Redux, um, which uh, deals with the fact that uh, this was not the war that was going to end all wars between India and Pakistan, although that was the expectation. 
the war is still going on. Uh, and even today, as India spends a month celebrating its quote-unquote victory, it's going to provoke an equal and opposite and perverse reaction in Pakistan, uh, likely to rekindle the war spirit among a generation that doesn't, was not around at the time of even the last major conflict in 71. So I'm, I'm going to go through and present some facts. Uh, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that my friend Steve Cohen uh, spoke very briefly. So maybe I'll take a few extra minutes uh, just to, to share some of the facts of what happened uh, based on um, both Indian and Pakistani sources. And I believe that one should rely on first-hand accounts much more than opinion, uh, which is quite often wrong uh, in this case. Uh, what led to the war? Uh, there was a quick skirmish in the run of Kutch in the spring of 1965. Uh, and it's unclear whether this was as a way for Pakistan to test India's preparedness after the debacle of the 1962 Sino-Indian conflict, or whether it was to preempt uh, what is uh, established even in the official Indian history of the 65 war as uh, uh, an operation that was to capture some territory inside the run of Kutch uh, that uh, was occupied by Pakistan. Uh, that border had, had not been clearly demarcated and so remained a, a source of conflict. Uh, Pakistan moved rapidly. They used a preponderance of force. They moved a brigade from Quetta uh, and they won territory and this managed to boost the morale of the forces. Uh, this also gave Pakistan a great advantage later in the year, in uh, 65, because having moved their forces, although there was some move back to Quetta, but other troops remained near the border. Pakistan's advantage over India was that because uh, the country lacks the depth that India has, a lot of its peacetime locations tend to be closer to the border with India. India always had to use time in order to uh, basically telegraph its punch and had to move troops longer distances. So Pakistan retained its forces closer to the border. Then, uh, because of heightened activity in Kashmir across the ceasefire line, which is now called the line of control, um, India made a very preemptive move which gave it strategic advantage. It captured the Hajipir Pass. By capturing the Hajipir Pass, it closed uh, what is known as the Bidori Bulge. This was a strategically important location for Pakistani ground forces in Kashmir. And that uh, became a kind of uh, troublesome issue for Pakistan because they had a plan uh, which was to launch an operation called Gibraltar, uh, which was based on the backstory of a spontaneous uprising in Indian-held Kashmir. As Steve has alluded, the premises behind this operation did not hold up. First, there was no popular uprising in Kashmir. Second, the fighting was not confined to Kashmir. The Pakistani assumption was that uh, this would become a local affair, it would raise the profile of the Kashmir issue, and then perhaps the whole issue of the Kashmir dispute and the, the issue of a plebiscite under UN auspices would be raised using the argument that the Kashmiris wanted this. But we know that this didn't happen, and there was a, a faulty Pakistani assumption and a decision made during that early stage of the conflict. Uh, the Foreign Office at that time still had influence, and 
um, Foreign Secretary Aziz Ahmed and the uh, Foreign Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto played a key role in telling the military not to provoke the Indians across the international boundary, which meant that after the run of Kutch uh, imbroglio, the uh, mines that had been laid were removed. Many of the troops were moved back from the forward positions, so they were coming back to their cantonments. Though they were close to the border, they were not at the border. And so this created a pro problem later for Pakistan. Now, India did have a plan whose aims were well developed, and this was codenamed Operation Riddle. This plan was developed at the request of Prime Minister Shastri after the run of Kutch, and Pakistan uh, was seen by the Prime Minister as having taken advantage in the run of Kutch. So according to uh, a book called The 1965 War, The Inside Story, based on the diaries of then Defense Minister Y.V. Chavan, the plan originally envisaged the following, that I, which is one and 11 corps, would launch simultaneous offensives in Sialkot and Lahore sectors. By the 4th of September 1965, because of Pakistani moves into uh, Kashmir, Akhnur had come, quote, under unbearable pressure and a diversionary attack had become desperately essential. Now here I'm quoting from the Defense <coughs> Minister of India's diaries. And three, Chavan, the defense minister, quote, approved the army chief Chaudhry's decision to launch 11 Corps under General J.S. Dillon into attack across the international border in the Punjab. So this was Operation Riddle. And the Indian war plan had three broad aims. One, to destroy the ability of the Pakistan army to wage war. Two, to occupy territory that could be used for negotiation later on. And three, to, quote, defend against Pakistan's attempts to grab Kashmir by force, unquote. Among other things, it chose to follow this higher direction of war by a two-pronged attack into Pakistan proper towards Sialkot and Lahore. But the Indian higher military high command was cautious and was driven by discord. The army chief, General Chaudhry, and the local army commander, General Harbaksh Singh, under whom these two corps that I'd mentioned earlier uh, operated, had very different views on the conduct of war. Defense Minister Chaban also didn't have confidence in General Chaudhry. He found that in meetings, Chaudhry would not answer questions fully, or uh, in his view, honestly, that he was always uh, keeping things close to, the, to his chest. And Chaudhry was also seen as being too careful and applauding kind of a general. Uh, in fact, he panicked when the Pakistanis launched a counterpunch in uh, southern Punjab uh, in, into the Indian Punjab, and he nearly ordered a retreat to Amritsar, which, if Harbaksh Singh had not intervened, would probably have taken place. Now, uh, we, look, we should look at the quantum of forces in 65 on both sides. And this is really what gave Pakistan, um, I think, its confidence that it could hold its own in a defensive war against India. Uh, they believed that India would need a four to one numerical advantage in order to attack Pakistan and to penetrate its defenses. In, in 1964, Pakistan had eight divisions. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but they included an armored division and an ind four independent brigade groups. They raised another division in, in May 1965, which was incomplete, but it was sent into action. Uh, the idea was, 
to have a defensive structure to absorb the enemy's attack and then counterattack. This was from official Pakistani sources. Uh, according to General Mahmoud Ahmed's research of military documents, the Pakistan Army headquarters estimated in May 1965 that India had 19 divisions, of which seven were committed to the Chinese border and two were committed to East Pakistan. So four infantry divisions and one armored and one infantry brigade were in Indian-held Kashmir. So this gave the Pakistanis confidence that they could hold their own in case the Indians chose to cross the border. Interestingly, uh, we were talking of intelligence failures. In August 1965, uh, the ISI Directorate, the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, issued a report to the President of Pakistan, which was copied to all the service chiefs, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army Chief. And it said that the Indian government had allowed the Indian Army Chief, quote, to cross the ceasefire line whenever and wherever necessary. So this was quite clear from a source uh, within India. And they had also warned that Indian forces had remained within striking distance of the West Pakistan border. We are not talking of Kashmir, of West Pakistan border after the run of Kutch uh, skirmish or incident or war or whatever you call it. Despite this, the GHQ's own assessment from Rawal Pindi uh, which was captured in Operation Instruction Number 49-65, envisaged, and I'm quoting now from the document, the main Indian offensive in Kashmir with some offensive threat against East Pakistan, but none against West Pakistan borders. This was a mistake in retrospect. I'm quoting here from General Ahmed's book. The result was that Pakistan punched way above its weight, it was outnumbered on the ground and in the air, but it managed to foil the Indian thrusts and it dominated the air in the initial stages of the war. Uh, the Indian Air Force was not to be seen very actively on the front in the early days of the war. And both the navies played a very tangential role, except for one uh, audacious move by the Pakistan Navy, which sailed into the Arabian Sea and attacked the Indian uh, port of Dwarka. Uh, the Indian Navy chief, in fact, uh, protested and asked for a meeting with the prime minister and with the defense minister, then the prime minister, and then with the president of India, and had to be assuaged that, you know, that the Navy would be brought into the conflict, but they were told to be in a holding uh, pattern. Uh, this is from uh, the, the, the diaries of, of the defense minister. How well did the Indian military do. I, I give you two opposite points of view. One is from the Indian side, and then I'll, I'll share the Pakistani assessment. In General Harbaksh Singh's own accounts in, in his book, War Dispatches, um, and also in, uh, in a more recent article by Manoj Joshi uh, in The Wire, um, uh, this is reflected. Quote, 11 Corps' performance was, quote, a sickening repetition of command failures leading the sacrifice of a series of cheap victories, unquote. And I Corps, quote, with the exception of a few minor successes, the operational performance was virtually a catalog of lost victories. In two key battles, uh, Dograi near Lahore and Felora early in the war, Indian forces broke through, but were pulled back by uh, commanders who were worried that they had been sucked into a trap. 
these, these objectives had to be recaptured later uh, during the war at the time of the ceasefire uh, negotiations, well after the attacks had lost their momentum. On the Pakistani side, uh, in my book I quote, among other military sources, General Akhtar Malik, who was the author of Gibraltar and Operation Grand Slam, who assessed uh, the decision, especially after Ayub Khan uh, and uh, General Musa, the army chief, had decided to change commanders uh, in that sector, replacing Akhtar Malik with Yahya Khan, uh, in the middle of the Cham uh, offensive in the Cham sector. He said, quote, we lost the initiative on the very first day and never recovered from it, unquote. My own characterization of this war effort was that it was marked by, quote, tactical brilliance and gallantry at the lower levels of command, nullified by a lack of vision and courage among the higher levels of leadership of the Pakistan army, unquote. General Mahmoud Ahmed's magisterial book, which uh, was called Illusions of Victory, but which the, the army then changed the title to the more anodyne history of the Indo-Pak War, 1965, supports this view to a large extent. Interestingly, there were some 28 study groups that were conducted at the Army Staff College in Quetta. Jack may be familiar with some of those. Um, I don't know if a similar uh, effort was made on the Indian side, but it would be interesting to see if the new official history of the 65 war in India supports that view. But these study groups more or less support uh, a more balanced assessment of the results of the conflict. However, Ayub Khan's propaganda machine portrayed the war as a, quote, magnificent victory, unquote, against India, but this did not save his pres presidency. Pakistan had failed to liberate Kashmir, uh, and it had failed to provoke a, a popular uprising in that disputed territory. On the other hand, a numerically stronger India had failed to destroy the military might of the Pakistan army or even capture Sialkot or Lahore or to make Pakistan sue for peace. Pakistan basically held its own using its superior US-supplied artillery and armor in the early stages to halt the two-pronged attack on Lahore and Sialkot, but barely just. A longer conflict may have created a different result. But that is speculation, and I'm not going to venture into that territory. Interestingly, the Indian Army Chief General J.N. Chaudhary misinformed his own Prime Minister of the state of uh, supplies of the Indian Army. He gave a roundabout answer when the Prime Minister Shastri asked him how the supply situation was. In fact, by September 22nd, when the ceasefire was negotiated, India had only consumed 14% of its ammo stocks. On the other hand, Pakistan had truly run out of its ammo and strategic reserves. Um, the Pakistani Air Force managed to counter the larger Indian Air Force effectively, and as I said, dominated the skies in the early days, and the navies really didn't play much of an active role. Um, the Indian Army chief favored a ceasefire because he declared at, at the emergency meeting of the cabinet that uh, their objectives had been achieved. And that led the Prime Minister to accept the request from the Secretary General Uthant of the UN uh, to agree to a ceasefire. Uh, the sequencing of this is interesting. Both had agreed in principle, and then Pakistan demurred, 
And the Secretary General asked Mr. Shastri if he would unilaterally declare a ceasefire. Mr. Shastri said no. Then the Pakistanis said, yes, we accept the ceasefire because they had run out of steam. And the moment they said yes, then Shastri said, yes, I will too. This is all captured very well in, in uh, Minister Chavan's diaries, as well as in a brilliant biography of Mr. Shastri by C.P. Srivastava, who was his personal secretary, who later on became head of the IMO. Now, both sides claim different amounts of territory that they captured, and the numbers are the mirror opposite. Uh, the, the reality is that in all the India-Pakistan wars, territory is exchanged in the first four or five days, more or less. It's the straightening of the borders, little enclaves of India on the Pakistani side of rivers or borders are cleared by Pakistan and vice versa. In the desert, a uh, little more territory is captured because there's not much to defend or worth defending. Um, but what were the results of this war? And this is an answer to the questions posed to us. It didn't change anything on the ground, but it altered the flow of history, particularly in Pakistan, because it led to the eventual breakup of Pakistan. It convinced the people of East Pakistan that they were not front and center in the calculations in terms of the defense of Pakistan, because uh, the focus was entirely on, on the West and not on East Pakistan. Uh, it led to the creation of the six-point agenda by Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and the Awami League and the birth of Bangladesh with Indian help. In the longer run, it produced a checkmate situation based on nuclear weapons, as Steve has alluded, and the ability to destroy each other many times over. Uh, the results uh, are now a challenge of waging peace instead of war. And with 350 million poor people, I think South Asia deserves a better chance uh, to lead more productive lives in the region at peace rather than to reopen the issue of a war that nobody, to my mind, actually won. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Nawaz. Uh, Colonel Jack Gill. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador, and thanks to the Huston Institute for this uh, invitation to be here on a panel with uh, both the chair and uh, the fellow panelists, our, our longtime friends and uh, people I respect very, very highly. I should start by saying that I am a U.S. government employee. What I say, however, are, reflects nothing from the U.S. government. I speak on my own uh, behalf and my own capacity, so please don't take anything as representing any policy or position elsewise from uh, the United States government. Mm -hmm. Let me divide my remarks into two principal sections and then some concluding thoughts that don't fit easily into any particular categories. So I'll talk first about the military side and then some regional or structural dimensions, if you will. Starting on the military dimension, uh, first, what's I think interesting here is that much of the song remains the same, if you will. That is, one of the most striking things, for me at least, is what has not changed since 1965. Among those prominent aspects, in my opinion, are the things at least that remain the same, more or less, are one, the predominant importance of ground forces, both within their respective defense establishments, as well as in determining the outcome of any major India-Pakistan uh, conflagration. The Air Forces, as uh, Shuja has so nicely outlined, uh, were secondary in 1965, but I suspect that air power might be the one particular area where major change could take place in the future, or at least the potential is, uh, is there. Uh, the navies, though now much larger, uh, are likely to remain of limited tactical importance in the sorts of short wars that both sides envisage. 
Secondly, there's been little change in the tactical military doctrines, India's supposed cold start concept notwithstanding, on either side. Uh, that is, there's no evident shift in tactical uh, doctrine that would lead one to expect a dramatically different outcome uh, on the battlefield. Third, the military cultures on both sides remain overwhelmingly conservative, at least as far as those of us on the outside can tell. Uh, fourth, there's been little change in the mobility or logistical sustainment capacity of either army, again, re remembering the importance of ground forces. So that although both sides include mechanized or mobile forces of various sorts, they remain largely foot-mobile armies on the ground. The upshot of these several latter points is that any sort of major campaign-deciding, war-winning armored drives, while not impossible, are rather unlikely, in my view. That is to say, one should not expect to see some kind of a 1991 desert storm sweep across Rajasthan or Sindh or Chola, uh, uh, any place else in, uh, in India and Pakistan. So what then are, if those are similarities, what are some of the differences as compared to 50 years ago? In the conventional field, both sides, of course, have increased dramatically in numbers. Equipment is much more modern, prepared defenses are more numerous and more, uh, more prepared. All of which means there's a likelihood of greater lethality, but no decisive war-winning conventional systems on either side. Again, the air possibly is the one with the potential for the greatest near-term change. So one is forced to wonder whether this likelihood of greater lethality for military forces might not also apply to civilians. In the past, the civilian populations of both countries have been largely sheltered from major losses. But in a future conflict, even if it's exclusively conventional, might we not see more civilian casualties given growth in population on both sides and a greater lethality available to both military forces? Civilian casualties, of course, would be the crucial consideration or a crucial consideration should any hostilities slip into the nuclear arena. And this is uh, arguably the biggest difference since 1965, even though my fellow panelist here, Dr. Cohen, wrote about nuclear weapons as early as 1965 in one of his many prescient moments. Uh, the consequences for stability and the catastrophic potential inherent in nuclear weapons are far too well known to dwell on much here, but we can consider that in the discussion period. Related to the nuclear dimension, however, is the fact that the two no longer know each other, as they did in 1965, at least as far as I can tell. Even if this facet has been perhaps overplayed in the mythology or the discussions of 65 in the past, the, uh, this, the, the two sides did have a common background in the British military forces from the Second World War and up to partition, and there were a number of people on both sides who did personally know each other and have a general sense of the, the cultures on the other side in the other opposing military. It's only 18 years after partition, as Ambassador Hakani pointed out. But now we're 70 years and several generations beyond partition. So that reduces, in my opinion, the degree of common understanding and greatly increases the chances of misperception, miscalculation, especially if there's a continued persistence of a belief that they do understand one another. There are a number of other differences, but let me conclude this section by just noting the presence of significant militant uh, infrastructure on the Pakistan side that would be a major factor, both a challenge for Pakistan, who's already embroiled in battle with some of these groups, and for India, which might want to target some of these groups, and for the international community attempting to craft some kind of a response to a future India-Pakistan crisis. Let me then go to some structural regional dimensions that, might, that are different or the same as in the past, and mostly focusing here on differences. So if we pursue this thought about the international community for a moment, external actors could play significant roles in mitigating or resolving a future India-Pakistan confrontation, 
but the international landscape today, I would argue, is vastly different from that of the mid-Cold War. China was certainly important to Pakistan in 1965, and that relationship is now stronger. But it's also a different China, and much would depend on the exact circumstances of the conflict and how Beijing sees itself involved in international crises. That is, philosophically, how Beijing decides it wants to play a role or not play a role, visibly, not, not so visibly, behind the scenes, etc., uh, in the future. <coughs> Moreover, the Sino-Indian relationship has completely changed. 1965, as we mentioned already, came only three years after India's humiliating defeat at the hands of Mao's China. Now the two are major trading partners, and India is in a completely different position uh, militarily and economically, as, uh, as well as on the international stage. So I would thus argue that China would be an even more significant actor in the future, but it's very difficult to outline how it might behave. Russia, on the other hand, is likely to have less influence outside of the UN Security Council, in contrast to the USSR of 65, who convened the Tashkent conference that brought the conflict to an end. The UK, too, again, outside of the UN Security Council, is likely to be more marginal, again, compared to its role in the, uh, the mid-60s. Japan and the EU, on the other hand, depending on where the EU is with its uh, numerous uh, internal challenges, and Saudi Arabia, could be more significant actors uh, than they were in 65. Iran might also be a significant player, depending on the outcome of the, the recent negotiations. Uh, unlike in the Shah's day, however, I would think that Iran would not automatically side with Pakistan. And the United States, well, the LBJ administration consciously stepped away from the 1965 war, uh, but the U.S. Played a, has played a leading role, uh, certainly an important role, and I would think a leading role, in India-Pakistan crises from 1990 through 2008. Uh, however, I'm personally very skeptical that the United States government could reprise this kind of a leadership role, that is pulling the two sides back from the brink, especially as it did and helped to do in 1999 and 2001-2002. So I'm very skeptical that could be repeated in the future. And also it seems unlikely that any kind of U.S. arms embargo would have the kind of impact in the present day that it had in 1965, given the diversity of weapon systems on both sides. The other major change in the international environment that we can uh, note here is the rise of numerous Islamic uh, militant groups since 1965, both local and global. We cannot predict how these would insert themselves in some kind of a future India-Pakistan crisis, but they would surely be a consideration for both capitals as well as for those on the outside trying to contain the confrontation. So let me conclude with a couple of uh, questions that are interesting and difficult at the same time, and we can perhaps discuss in the, uh, in the following period here. First, how will civil military relations in the two capitals affect the contours of some kind of a future crisis? In 1965, the Indian civil government was a, took a more or less hands-off approach to operational matters, uh, leaving those in the hands of the military, in part in reaction to the experience of 1962. This seems unlikely to be repeated in the future, but the nature of civil-military relations in New Delhi would certainly shape any confrontation, at least from the Indian side. The dynamic between Pakistan's civil and military leaders would also be critical, of course. That Pakistan was under army rule in 1965, albeit with Mr. Bhutto as a major factor, and as we noted already, that the foreign ministry had a, had a larger role at, at that time. Uh, even though the army continues in the dominating heights and security issues today, we would have to ask what the situation was at the exact moment of crisis, how would this dynamic evolve, and how would the crisis itself change the civil-military relations. The second, uh, the media available today is completely different, and often frighteningly so, if I may say so, from 1965. 
what influence the profusion of press outlets and social media would have on a future India-Pakistan confrontation is very hard to say. Going by some recent experience, the media factor, however, is certainly uh, seems fairly sure to put uh, severe pressure on both governments, uh, particularly with uh, the proliferation of often jingoistic uh, media on both sides of the border. Third and finally, any future conflict, of course, takes place within the historical context of 1965. Both its objective history, some of which uh, Shuja has very nicely outlined for us, at least as far as we can discern that here at this remove, and its history as perceived by the two sides, which, of course, to some degree wanders into mythology. As the history and mythology that the two sides use to, uh, to examine their own actions and those of outsiders, uh, it will be, will be critical. It behooves us on the outside to develop our own independent understanding of this piece of the past and therefore better comprehend the present and perhaps envisage some of the future. So with that, let me uh, again thank Ambassador Hakani and the Hudson Institute and my fellow panelists and turn things back to our chair. Thank you very much. Uh, so we have the preliminary remarks. Uh, I'll open this for conversation to the audience in just a minute after I do one round of questions uh, using the prerogative of being the moderator. Uh, the, I remember a, a, a retired American general joking with me that the 1965 war was a war between uh, two Second World War armies uh, trained to fight for someone else, primarily the British, <laughs> Uh, um, and both sides demonstrated not a balance of power, but a balance of incompetence. Uh, based on what all the speakers have said, I think that there seems to be more or less consensus uh, along those lines on this panel without anyone necessarily being as harshly critical as this particular source of mine was. Uh, Professor Cohen, my first question for you would be that since you wrote the book, uh, Shooting for a Century, are you one of those who thinks that, based on your knowledge of both India and Pakistan, and this has as much of a, 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 it is as much psychological as it's logical, uh, that uh, is shooting for a century inevitable in the political environment of the subcontinent? What would it take for India and Pakistan to overcome their mutual hostility and not repeat? Uh, what has been repeated, by the way, I would think that we haven't gone there yet. But for example, in 1999, there were, there were shades or shadows of 1965 in the sense that uh, when Kargil was started, there were assumptions that Pakistan will be able to take certain heights across the line of control. Conflict will be remitted, even though nuclear wars had by now come about. But there was an assumption that conflict will remain limited and that it will only be about Kashmir and it will not escalate. It means... So many years after 1965, still there were some people in Pakistan's military who were thinking, again, the Air Force was not taken into confidence, the Navy wasn't consulted, the political leadership either didn't understand what was about to ha what they had been consulted on or were not effectively consulted or, uh, or didn't sort of, you know, uh, take charge, something like so, so, so what, what would it take for the dynamic between these two countries to change? Um, it would take, I think, a deeper understanding in both countries, uh, especially in, uh, by the military in Pakistan and by the civilians in India. In a sense, the po their politics are imbalanced in that way, of, of what they have lost and what they could gain by, by normalizing the relationship. I don't mean peace, but I mean a normal relationship. In a sense, this is the biggest wasted opportunity in modern history. 
so and I, and I think in the, I've, I've argued that there are two ways in which this could come about. One would be a bottom-up process, which is the dream of liberals in both countries. That is through people-to-people -people dialogue, economic trade, the, 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 the enough, enough, enough common interest would be generated at, at the human level, the working level, level of corporations, that eventually they will put pressure on politicians and others to bring about normalization. The other would be top-down, where six guys, and they're all going to be guys, get around a table and they decide the contours of a piece, the, uh, the sort of a European balance of power model. I think you need both. You need top-down and bottom-up. But in any process where normalization is proceeding, there's always going to be blockers. Uh, in a sense, people or institutions who don't want to see peace happen, who profit by, by conflict or benefit or don't trust the other side. And I think that's the way I see the future. Having been very, and the book is very pessimistic, but having said that, I see little signs in both countries, especially in India and Pakistan, both countries, that the pro a normalization process, I don't call it a peace process, could take place. In India, there have been several indications that, that Modi may be thinking of something like a, a, a Nixon trip to China arrangement. Uh, when I was a professor, I used to run simulations, and one of my students, students' teams actually sent Nixon to China before Nixon went to China. And I ruled the move as, as, as illegal. Couldn't do it because that was unrealistic. In my mind, at that time, Nixon would never go to China. He, he did go to China. I retrospectively gave the student an A. So I think that <laughs> you, 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 can see Modi, you can see Modi going to Pakistan, or Pakistan coming to India, with some, with some grand strategy uh, in mind. We'd have to persuade parties on both sides that this is going to work. And India would have to persuade the Congress party that the BJP could do this. And in, in Pakistan, you have to persuade the military to allow Nawaz to do this. So in a sense, the, the people to do this may not be, but there have been enough little indications that, that Modi, Modi or people in, in, in the BJP may be thinking of this. Uh, on the, if I had to bet, I would not bet that it's going to happen. But I would like to see it happen. And, but, but, but and again, I think the, lo the loss to both countries of this going on indefinitely like this is, is catastrophic. And also, they do run the risk of a catastrophic war. There's no question that the risk is as good or greater than that between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Now, I mean, many of us, of course, have wished for a Nixon to China moment in, in India-Pakistan relations, but could Nixon have ever gone to China if there was a Chinese equivalent of Hafiz Saeed uh, sort of, you know, coming on television all the time, no. advocating uh, and, and being involved in attacks across in the United States in urban centers? So, for example, uh, would that even have been possible? So, so doesn't that kind of make this, I mean, I know that you're cautiously pessimistic, uh, but give me some reason to become a little more optimistic uh, for that model, because my fear is that that model is being undermined by these factors that I've just stated. You know, Nixon couldn't have done it. Nixon did it because Mao was willing. No. And Mao could bring China on board. Now, Nawaz Sharif cannot bring Pakistan on board without having the no. Pakistani military and the Hafizais of this world on board. So the limits are far greater and the opportunities far less. Nixon also had to overcome the opposition of American conservatives who thought mm -hmm. that going to China was, was becoming pro-China. I've argued in the book and elsewhere that they, India and Pakistan face a larger enemy that is extreme ultra-militant Islamists. And that's true in the Middle East also. My last piece I wrote for Brookings was comparing the Middle East peace process with the South Asian normalization process. In a sense, ex Islamic extremism of the Islamic, uh, the IS uh, 
variety really present a threat both to moderate Muslim leadership in Iran, Saudi Arabia, and as well as as well as Israel and other and and the same th threat exists regarding India and Pakistan. So they've got to decide that there's a common threat that's bigger than than their immediate quarrel. And unless you can come up with that common threat, I think uh, Islamic State could be that kind of threat. Good, Mr. Shir Nawaz. I have a couple of questions for you as well. Uh, firstly, um, just for my information. Uh, since you've researched this in far greater detail than anybody else uh, uh, on this panel and possibly in this room. Um, from what I understand from what you said, the Indians had a plan for crossing the Pakistani international border. The Pakistani intelligence did warn against that plan, but yet the Pakistani uh, decision makers assumed that it would not take place. Uh, um, that's one part. Second, if the Foreign Office of Pakistan had assured the Pakistani authorities at the time that, uh, that if Pakistan does not cross the international border, India will not, um, could we have given a wrong signal, for example? What, what, uh, to what extent is it true that part of the maneuvers of going into Kashmir and in, especially in Grand Slam involved some short crossing of the international border? and that that probably uh, provoked the Indians into crossing the international border more quickly. Although they would have tried to relieve pressure uh, in Kashmir through putting pressure on the international border as well. What factors went into that assumption being made part of the decision? Uh, first of all, um, let me refer to something you'd said earlier and that Steve referred to also. Um, I think Henry Kissinger had once referred to India and Pakistan and said that uh, the problem is that their militaries fight by the book. Uh, and the real difficulty is that they're fighting by the, from the same book. Uh, so this is really a battle between two sparring partners who knew each other's moves. And as Jack pointed out, uh, that generation that fought in 65, uh, to some extent influenced the decision making in 71. Uh, basically uh, had read the same campaigns of North Africa and so on. And they were all trained to think in terms of long drawn out campaigns like the Second World War, whereas in fact they were only capable of fighting a one or two week war, uh, and that would be the end of it. So I think that that needs to be understood. Now what actually prompted uh, the Indian move across the border, uh, I think is, is critical. Um, there was a plan. All armies have plans. So there was a plan, and it has been identified in the, uh, in the Indian accounts, uh, official Indian accounts, as Operation Riddle, uh, which was to cross the international border, to, to seize territory, to cut the GT road, uh, the Grand Trunk Road, uh, and uh, to make Pakistan sue for peace, and thereby destroy the <coughs> military capacity of the Pakistan army. Um, but what actually prompted the, uh, the launch, uh, I think, was probably uh, the success of Operation Grand Slam, or the impending success of Operation Grand Slam. Uh, strategically, this was a very bad idea because it had never been discussed by, with the Pakistan army as a whole. This was only confined to the head of the 12 Div, General Akhtar Malik, and uh, to uh, Mr. Bhutto and Mr. Aziz Ahmed and a few others around Ayub Khan. 
Um, the rest of the army, the, 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 the corps commanders, of, of, there, were, there were no major corps, but the div commanders, there was only one corps, um, uh, and, and one three-star general in Bakhtiar Rana. But the rest of the military leadership, like Kargil, was not involved. Like and they would have had uh, serious doubts about all of this if they had been involved. What happened was when Grand Slam occurred, Akhtar Malik, who had kept his cards close to his chest, in a maneuver which was unexpected, he, he refused to play by the same book, the one that Kissinger was referring to, took the Indians by surprise penetrated the first line of defense, second line of defense, and had the option now of either going left to Aknur or right towards Jammu and cutting off all access to Kashmir. If that had happened, the whole game would have changed on the ground. Ayub Khan realized that that would be the case, and he was scared that the international border would be crossed by India and that this would provoke an all-out war for which he was really not prepared. And so he, through his army chief, stopped the attack, changed commanders, brought his favorite Yaya from 7 Dev to take over the operations of 12 Dev, removed Akhtar Malik. For 48 hours, uh, the attack was halted. And when that was halted, General Chaudhry had time to regroup and to counterattack. And this is when he launched the operation on Lahore and Sialkot. So uh, this was really, I think, the hinge point at, uh, of the, the timetable at that time. The, the broader question, I think, is still important, which is, I, I know Steve is, is pessimistic. I am, by nature, an optimist. I think Prime Minister Modi has to be taken at face value. He wants to change the economic map of India. If he's going to successfully change the economic map of India, he's got to bring the 300 million people that are living below the subsistence line in India, above that line of economic subsistence. And Pakistan has roughly 40 to 50 million people in the same category. That is the Petri dish from where militarism and militancy and extremism takes its recruits. And I think that will be the big change that has to occur in Pakistan as well as in India. Now, we are seeing some early signs that maybe uh, there is a shift and that the Pakistani military is now gone for some of the groups in the Punjab. Uh, I think the test will be whether they expand this and whether the jihadi influence is removed, because this has a, a backdraft that affects the Pakistan military and Pakistani society at large. I think that's, that's a danger that I think they're now aware of, or we hope they're aware of. And the same applies in India. Uh, if, you, if you remove these dangers, and create opportunities. Final point, I think both governments have to be much more open and trusting of their own people. Neither India nor Pakistan is willing to share their own very candid assessments of their military operations. India never released the Henderson Brooks report on the Indo-Chinese conflict. They had an official history of 65 that was leaked by Manoj Joshi. Uh, and now they're getting a new Indian history written of 65. 50 years after the event. The facts are not going to change, but maybe the spin will change. Uh, and Pakistan has never really officially released a lot of its documents either. If it weren't for the work done by Mahmoud Ahmed, we would not know a lot of the thinking that occurred at Army headquarters, 
at ISI, uh, at the Staff College. So I think there needs to be much more trust of the people of both countries. Uh, and as Steve said, I think their voice is now being heard through the media, and, and Jack also talked about the role of the media. I think that is, that is what makes me hopeful. Uh, folks, hold on to your questions. Uh, I just have one quick one for uh, uh, Colonel Jack Gill. You worked on Cargill as well. Mm. So weren't there shades of 65 in Cargill assumptions? This is 34 years later. Um, I want to have the same optimism as Shuja does, but I think we both <laughs> eat different morning cereals. Um, <laughs> I mean, if an institution that is now led by people who were very, very junior in 1965, but they can still think the same way, that they can actually have a limited war and that that will give them the advantage in Kashmir, that will force India to negotiate, etc. What makes us, uh, uh, what should make us optimistic that something similar, because you, you know my critique. I mean, I, I, I am a Pakistani, I care about Pakistan, I... Uh, also care about the Pakistani military. I, it, is, it is the military of the country that I come from. But I sometimes wonder whether ideology doesn't overcome a pragmatic decision-making. And maybe that is where the weakness lies. So to what extent do you see shades of that in 65? For example, it was part of ideology that once the liberators arrive, the Kashmiris will rise up. It was not based on an actual assessment of what the Kashmiris thought. There wasn't enough substantive intelligence, you know, yep. uh, to, 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 to try and hope and plan for that. And the same in case of Kargil, the assumption that once we have the heights, the Indians will, will, will act the way we want them to, whereas they didn't. So, so we, what is your sort of, you know, observation on that based on your extensive interaction with the militaries of both countries and your study of Cargill versus 65 and even 71. How much of it is ideological predisposition to think a certain way? Because it is a very competent army. I mean, there's no doubt that the Pakistani army is an extremely competent institution. Is it these, these what I call ideological sort of uh, shadows that make it not move in the purely pragmatic, methodical decision-making? that one should expect from them. Oh, I think you're, uh, you're exactly right in looking at uh, 1999 and seeing uh, some remarkable resemblances to 1965 and, and just hitting three of those. One is the, the uh, misappreciation, if you will, of the likely Indian reaction uh, and even just going by things in the, in the press, it was clear that there was a complete misunderstanding, misreading of what the Indian reaction would be, and secondly, a misreading of uh, what would happen inside Kashmir, even though in 99 there is an active insurgency going on that was not present in 65, uh, a misreading of what the action in the Kargil region would imply for that insurgency. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, I'm sure one could find more, but just on the top of my head, the thirdly is the extreme secrecy with which the operation was planned. And therefore, and therefore, when it finally becomes open, uh, and there, there's, a, there's some wonderful uh, material on this from a, a now-retired uh, Pakistani Air Commodore that uh, the Air Force was completely uh, surprised. Uh, so when things finally come out in the open, the other services and even the other parts of the Army are not prepared. Or they're caught unawares uh, to a large degree, let alone 
the diplomatic corps and the common public, et, et cetera. I think Shuja's point uh, about uh, the, the importance of, uh, of history is, having pretensions to be an historian myself, I'd like to indulge in history, but I think it's important that we try and face our histories in as open a fashion as possible. Uh, the, whether you're sitting in the United States or the United Kingdom or New Delhi or Islamabad or Pindi or anywhere else, uh, I think that's absolutely essential. And uh, it's, uh, it's something I, I think on the U.S. side that we try to do. can't say we always do that effectively, but I think there's a real effort to try and, and look at things the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the dubious, uh, and everything in between. Uh, and that, therefore, provides a foundation for looking at the future. So I would just... Uh, Absolutely. Endorse, I think, uh, I think Shri Nawaz also has a very valid point upon, about the need of transparency, in, at least about history, if not, not about immediate decision-making. And to the misappreciations that you listed, I would add one more, a misappreciation of what the international community might do. Yes, yes. For example, in 65, it was assumed the Americans will continue with uh, military supplies, which right. they didn't. And in 1999, it was assumed that both China and America would, as a result of this conflict, put pressure on India to settle Kashmir. Instead, they put pressure on Pakistan to vacate Kargil. So, uh, so, so that's another one. Questions, comments, keep your comments brief if you are going to make comments. Questions are statements with a question mark at the end and that require an answer. No speeches. We had these gentlemen for speeches here. Microphones there. When I point to somebody, the microphone will come to you. Uh, introduce yourself briefly as a thing, right in the middle. Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. Um, one quick economic, one quick military question. Economically, We've been reading over the years about uh, SOC, the South Asian Regional Community, SAFTR, and so on. Are there been developed since 1965 any serious economic relations between India and Pakistan? And are we beginning to see any meaningful trade flows that could have a, that could uh, perhaps uh, uh, palliate some of the problems. The military questions are very quick. One, how has the Indian Army been doing with his own domestic insurgencies, and how has the Pakistan Army been doing with their own problems in the Northwest and Pakistan? And has any of these countries been developing, quote, tactical nuclear weapons that we're aware of, which could perhaps lead to the use of atomic power? Listen, thank you. For me, this was a brand new subject, and now I feel like an expert, so thank you very much. Well, don't feel too much of an expert, because the four of us do need jobs. This is our <laughs> way of living, right? Um, Professor Cohen, do you want to take the second part of the question about tactical nukes, yeah. about uh, in counterinsurgency, et yeah. cetera? One thing I see both in India and in Pakistan is the rise of new Herman Khans. Excuse me, that's an institute, big, but it's true. That kind of theolo theological approach to nuclear weapons that we could, we could take a nuclear, nuclear war, absorb it, but they can't, really drives people in both countries. And I saw that in the case of, that's why America wound up with thousands of nuclear weapons, because of that counter, counter, counter logic. You know, you, we get, you know, after their third strike, we still have something left to destroy them. So I think that we see that going. The irony is that people I talked to were very much in favor of Indian nuclear weapon pro program, even well before the test. They thought that once they got a nuclear weapon, they wouldn't care about Pakistan, but that they would deal with China, that the Chinese would come around and respect them. Well, that has not been the case. What Chinese respect, not nuclear weapons so much, but Indian economic growth. 
to, to the degree there is economic growth. So I think there was a miscalculation there, equivalent to the Pakistan Army's miscalculation about the Indians could be pushed around and all they need is a, a whiff of grape shot and they'll, and, and, and they'll surrender in, in, in one way or the other. So since it's a cultural attitude of superiority, uh, and everybody has it, we had it when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan. We just assume we could push them around and get our way. So that's a, that's a danger that all politicians, all states face. And if you have just the military making these decisions, that's, 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 there's very little check and balance in the decision. But in India, you have the civilians making these decisions. You have equally unbalanced decisions. Mr. Nawaz, uh, India-Pakistan trade uh, and the counterinsurgency. Counter I think both India and Pakistan realize the importance of India-Pakistan trade, not just for bilateral reasons, but in terms of regional access, particularly to Afghanistan and beyond to Central Asia and even to Iran once the U.S.-Iranian sanctions are, are removed. Uh, but there's been almost no progress on that. Um, the the break, up of, break off of talks between India and Pakistan at the foreign secretary level, then recently at the national security advisor level, and the focus simply on terrorism uh, and not to try and, and resolve some of the other issues that bedevil this relationship is not helping either country. Uh, there isn't a large enough uh, support group uh, of the business community in, in both countries. I think that is critical. Um, business communities in both countries tend to still want to live off the largesse of the central government and to get benefits from them for operations. Uh, surprisingly, even in India, where it, which is a much larger and more autonomous, potentially, business community. In Pakistan, too, they're much more likely to seek protection and subsidies uh, in the agriculture sector as well as in manufacturing, rather than try and find complementarity, which would broaden their markets and provide something to the consumers on both sides. Uh, at the Atlantic Council, we published uh, a major study on this by the former head of the, the State Bank of Pakistan, identifying by individual sectors and hundreds of items that both countries now import from third countries that would be up to a third cheaper if they imported from each other. And you'd have this compa uh, comparative advantage, trade under comparative advantage. So not much progress has been made, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, the insurgencies both in India and in Pakistan, does anyone want to take that question? Well, I can talk about the tactical weapons. Yes, Pakistan has been testing a 60-kilometer range missile system since 2011, which is, is clearly designed to deliver nuclear device uh, so there is that on the Pakistan side. Pakistanis argue that the Indians have a similar program, but the evidence for that is much uh, is, is questionable. So you'd have to that's not in evidence, but on the Pakistan side is, is very clear. Uh, on counterinsurgency, I would turn back to Shuja, who actually wrote about this on the the uh, Pakistan development and, and evolution of uh, counterinsurgency techniques. Um, they have had some success, but the approach is, is very conventional. Uh, it, is, uh, <laughs> it is not um, uh, proper counterinsurgency with a strong nexus of counterterrorism. And the missing part in this has been the civilian part, uh, because particularly in the hinterland, until and unless the civilians take the lead uh, in these operations, uh, the military cannot be successful. Because in the True. border regions, the technique that has worked effectively has been the emptying of the territory of uh, all good people and then assuming that whoever remains is bad 
and then sorting them out with airstrikes and artillery and, and conventional movements. Uh, you can't do that in the hinterland. You can't do it in Karachi. You can't do it in, in Lahore or in southern Punjab. So there, I think there is now uh, a very active movement in the so-called apex committees where <coughs> the provincial administrations and the military get together and are making decisions. I hope that the better training and equipment of the civilians and the police forces in particular uh, will give them the opportunity of showing what they're capable of doing. Uh, remember that India succeeded in this in the Punjab. Uh, but they changed the economic incentives, they changed access to services, uh, they opened up uh, for even for expatriate uh, uh, Sikhs coming to Punjab, they, they opened single window operations, etc. This is how you win people over. Right. Um, so I think that, that is something that has to be learned. Mr. Fine? I'm Douglas Fife, senior fellow here at Hudson. First of all, thank you for an illuminating discussion. Uh, I'd like to ask about war aims and how, how you understand in 65 and, and even now there, in your discussions about people on both sides who don't want peace. For those people who don't want peace and presumably do, do want war, what do they think they can accomplish by war? I mean, what's the purpose of the war? What are they aiming at? You think I could give a first shot at sure. that? I think sure. Steve probably has a more deeper understanding of no. this. Uh, first of all, the facts. Um, both India and Pakistan operate under the British model of military planning and strategy. And so everything is guided by something called the War Directive, capital W, capital D. Technically, the civilian authority is the supreme authority, and they define the war directive. And this is based on doctrines that are produced at the service level and sent up. In fact, this doesn't really happen. Uh, the military in Pakistan has, has defined the war directive for decades, and it has never been updated. Uh, in 1990, I asked General Aslam Beg, when he was the army chief, to define the war directive of Pakistan, and it was quite simply quoted to me by his Director General of Military Operations, General Jahangir Karamat, as defending every inch of Pakistani territory against the enemy, which they never identify as India, but you have to translate it immediately as India. Uh, and so my response was, but that's an impossible task. You have you know, 1,500 miles of territory to defend. You don't have the forces to defend them. And so th this is a, a kind of endless uh, argument that uh, doesn't reach a conclusion. Uh, there hasn't been a proper debate and discussion of war aims and war directives. But in answer to your implied question, I think the forces that want uh, tension and hostility are really not interested in defeating India or defeating X or Y or Z. They're really interested in strengthening their base and forming a new base of support within the country. And in Pakistan in particular, because I know the country much better than I know India, um, these are the forces that have been spawned out of the jihadism that became a part of national policy uh, after the, the Afghan war against the Soviets. Uh, which was then translated into a war uh, in Kashmir and fomenting 
insurgencies and so on. So the groups that were spawned by this, that in fact, historically, and Ambassador Haqqani knows this better than most of us, had never supported the idea of Pakistan. These are the Islamic groups that now see the idea of fortress Pakistan fighting against the infidels uh, as a way to strengthen their position. To this point, they have not managed to translate that into votes at the election time. So they're trying through other means. And these are the means, uh, talk of, of war, uh, talk of uh, reviving Muslim supremacy and Muslim empires and Khorasan and the whole uh, bit. So IS gets traction, Al-Qaeda gets traction, uh, and who knows what new animal will emerge out of this. Uh, Steve, do you want to say something? Yeah, I'll say, just say one or two words. You know, great powers can fight wars, and they can win them or they can lose them. But for a small country, say Vietnam, for example, it's a total war by definition. For the Vietnamese, the, the war in Vietnam was a total war. For us, it was a limited war, which we, which we could lose or win. Depend and that's true, of the, that's, true of the, that's true of other countries where, where we're fighting. For India and Pakistan, it's not quite a total war, but it's not quite a limited war either. In a sense, their survival as states, as developed, because they're so poor, the developing states, is, is questionable if they, if they fight enough of these. That's more true of Pakistan than it is of, of India. India can fight a lot of little wars without, without, without going under, uh, and it has done that. You know, the Indian, Indian counterinsurgency guy once told me, first we, uh, dealing with insurgents, first we hit them over the head, then we teach them how to play the piano. Pakistanis are learning how to teach the insurgents how to play the piano. But for the insurgents, it may be a total war. You know, their whole lives, their whole ideas, of identities are committed to it. The other danger is that as a major power, all powers believe that the reputation is at stake, therefore they have to keep on throwing more and more into it, which is, which, that has to be a calculation whether it's worth it or not. But we can, we can, you know, big powers can fight limited wars. Mr. KDN here, right in the front. And then Colonel Chaudhry after him. Uh, thank you, Hussain. Uh, two quick observations. Uh, one is 1965, I thought, was a great strategic victory for India simply by not being provoked into taking military action in East, East Pakistan. There were airstrikes from East Pakistan, there were land skirmishes, but the Indians absorbed it all. Um, and that set the stage for the 71 war. Uh, the second observation is that this month also marks the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Tibet Autonomous Region, the TAR, which effectively formalized Beijing's grip over, China, over Tibet. And uh, Jack commented briefly on uh, uh, the role of China in, in the future of South Asian events. Uh, perhaps some other members of the panel too would want to comment on that. Thank you. Well, I'll take those as comments rather than questions, and I'm sure that people will comment on the comments in the second round. Uh, Colonel Chaudhary, right behind you. Uh, thank you, sir. I am Muhammad Rafiq, uh, visiting PhD scholar at Georgetown University. I just uh, want to add uh, some comment on uh, Colonel Jim's uh, remarks that uh, uh, military groups uh, our militant group, our jihadi, started since 1965. I fully agree, but there were two reasons. Uh, from 1965 to till 9/11, uh, these were because of a Kashmir issue, and mostly our uh, militant groups like Lashkar uh, Tayyiba and Jaish e Mohammed, something. They were focused on those issues, although supported by government or not, or this is some uh, other factor. 
and after 9/11, these Taliban phenomena uh, emerge. And uh, you, whenever we see the uh, uh, militancy in that region, we mostly forget the main actors or main cause of that. Uh, also, it should be always uh, linked uh, with the phenomena whenever we talk. And the other thing is, uh, I think uh, if. Uh, uh, both the countries, India and Pakistan, they, they make a mind that they have to go to uh, right direction, then anything like uh, Kargil or 1965 can be avoided. You see in uh, recently CPEC, China, Pakistan Economic Corridor with uh, uh, giving access China to Gwadar <coughs> and further to Middle East or uh, Central Asian states, if uh, it is uh, materialized and afterward India gets the access uh, towards the Central Asian state from Pakistan, and in return, India resolve the Kashmir issue, then there will be, I think, in future, there will be no chance of 1965 war and uh, Kargal-like. I just want a comment from uh, Mr. Steve P. Cohen as well and uh, Matt Gill. Okay, hold the comments. If we, we're going to get more comments requests, then we'll just pull them together to, to, uh, to uh, maximize time. Ambassador Subhan, right here. Uh. I'd like to thank all three yeah, panelists. Mr. Farooq Subhan, former Bangladesh uh, Foreign Secretary. Uh, excellent uh, comments and remarks. Uh, I have a question uh, regarding the role of China in 65. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, there, there are some people who argue with the reason why uh, East Pakistan was left effectively undefended was the belief that China would intervene had India opted to attack East Pakistan. Uh, would the panel like to comment on that? And my question specifically, uh, in fact, to Steve, would be um, how do you f visualize the role of China today in, in South Asia? Uh, we've seen... Uh, uh, Mr. Xi Jinping's visit to Pakistan, uh, a $46 billion commitment to development of infrastructure. Can China play a role in uh, perhaps uh, influencing uh, Pakistan to be more constructive, cooperative on the whole uh, regional cooperation agenda and in, on relations with India? Okay, so we have two China-related questions and one Kashmir-related questions. Panel, who wants to take? Who wants to take Maybe any? Maybe I others? can sure. start off with the '65 uh, war. Um, China did play a role. They played a very active role in the waning stages of the war, when Pakistan needed them to help speed up the discussions of the ceasefire uh, proposals uh, by actually threatening India and moving some forces and demanding that India return X number of sheep and goats and other things that had been occupied or captured by India. Uh, we know that this created consternation in the Indian cabinet from the defense minister's diaries and discussions of, within the cabinet and the emergency cabinet committee, ECC meetings, that they took this very seriously. Uh, and China, uh, India didn't want to provoke China into crossing the line. Um, that was not the only factor, I think, that affected Indian decision-making, but it certainly played a role. Uh, 
militarily. I think this is now in the area of speculation, and I, I don't like to go into that area, but the Pakistani premise, and indeed the conventional premise uh, at that time uh, in, in uh, all the militaries, more or less, was that for an attacking force, you need a four to one ratio versus the defending force. And India did not have that in East Pakistan. They had, they had two divisions devoted to the area around East Pakistan that were also looking uh, north, northeast towards China. And so uh, it would have been a bit of a gamble for India to have opened up that front. It would have certainly opened up much more uh, rapid international intervention in the conflict by broadening it. Uh, the other, and this is again in the area of speculation, is we don't know what effect that would have had on the population of East Pakistan at that time. It may, ended, it may have ended up creating a much more solid nationalistic feeling among the people that later developed the six points and, and wanted independence. So it may well have changed the history of that relationship and maybe led to a different ending uh, rather than the one that we saw in 1971. I think th that would be my contribution to, to, to the role that China played or didn't play. Yep. There were also, of course, in 71, hopeful assumptions on the Pakistan side that China would intervene in a direct fashion, which, of course, China had no intention of doing, but uh, some of the communications received by the Pakistani commander and, and then East Pakistan General Niazi uh, suggested to him that he, the Chinese were about to come to his assistance. Uh, I was perhaps unclear in uh, trying to talk about uh, militants in the interest of brevity. Uh, what I'm really thinking of is the, the sort of global groups, ISIS is most prominent to us today, but, uh, but others, as well as uh, locally based uh, organizations, groupings, uh, what have you. And uh, I would, I would uh, strongly agree with, uh, with Rafik Saab that the, the hope is, is commerce and trade and this sort of thing. But as my fellow panelists have pointed out, there are huge obstacles and the efforts to uh, to promote the kind of economic connectivity uh, all the way from Bangladesh to, to Tashkent and, and Kazakhstan have always stumbled on the, the India-Pakistan uh, border. So uh, sadly, that has not come to fruition, but uh, that there's one would certainly hope that that could be exploited. Yeah, let me comment on Ambassador Saban's comments and, and say that World War II was interesting and important because the party that allied with the United States, the KMT government, lost, is, is in, sitting in Taiwan. And the party that opposed the war, uh, the, the communist, actually dominated, united China. So in a sense, you had China united after the result of World War II, and India divided after World War II. So in a sense, the two great Asian powers, one was united and one was divided. And I think it's a fundamental geopolitical fact. Until the Chinese, now looking at the future, the Chinese have to learn to accommodate India, Indian sensibilities and so forth. Whether they'll do that or not, whether they'll do that, I, I just don't know. But they've got to make a, a deal for Asia, as beginning in Afghanistan, where they have strong interest. And even in Pakistan, they have strong interest. The Chinese have strong interest, and the Indians do too. A collaborative operation. And the Americans are going to be out of this, but the Chinese could take the lead, make this an India-China India arrangement to normalize Afghanistan and eventually normalize Pakistan. The Chinese don't want to see Pakistan become an extremist Islamic state. That's a very touchy issue for them. So that's my comment on China. So I think looking ahead, there's room for optimism. These two odd couple, you know, India that opposed the war, Indian nationals that opposed the war, 
in the Indian, Indian communists that also opposed the war may be uniting in, in, a, in, a, in a strategic venture now, where the Americans probably have little role to play. This mic right here in the front, Polly. And then after that, Professor Singh <coughs> right behind. Thank you. I'm, I'm Polly Nayak. I'm an independent consultant who's been doing South Asia for donkey's years. Um, I have a, a, a question that goes back to uh, Ambassador Haqqani's comment about ideology. Uh, one of the, um, there's a fair body of research that shows that one of the contributors to the dominance of an ideology um, <coughs> of, uh, of being a besieged state in Pakistan is the educational system and that this is actually true across the board uh, we're be, be we talking about um, public, that is, government-run schools, uh, Madari or um, uh, private uh, elite schools, that, uh, that this is, the, uh, is what is being imbued in students from early. So here's my question. Um, how could, what sort of, of uh, theoretical alliance, agreement, pact, um, understanding would there need to be perhaps, or, or am I on the right track here, between civilian and military leaders to begin to turn that around if Pakistan decides that it wants a different type of relationship with India? And how, there's a chicken and egg issue. Um, at what point um, does that become a critical obstacle or does it? Is, is, uh, is the ideology issue and whether it dominates uh, foreign policy decisions and outcomes with India completely an elite issue? How, how important is it to bring along the public okay. in Pakistan? Um, do you want to give your question uh, to us as well, Professor Singh? Just let's, yes. have the, let's have the question so that we can save time. Professor. Two questions simultaneously can be answered. Hello, my name is uh, Indajit Singh. Uh, I wanted to ask all three panelists, I know you're focusing on the military, but since we're looking ahead also, uh, I wonder whether you'd like to comment on the fact uh, that population problem uh, the best I can tell, uh, the population is going to double every generation. So 360 million soon, then 720 million soon, and the population uh, to water resources, to energy, to agriculture, to food. I mean, it's going to devastate Pakistan unless governance comes right. And won't the military want to focus on those sorts of things? Or do they, are they still overwhelmingly uh, focused on you know, military matters? Because I think the Pakistani internal uh, structures will collapse before, the, you know, before all the future wars we are talking about. Why don't you pass the mic right to the gentleman next to you so we can have all three questions and then we can have answers all at the same time. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm uh, Paul Eisenman. I'm now an independent uh, consultant. And like others, I'd like to thank all of you. The great uh, presentation. Uh, Mr. Cohen, you started off by saying, are they better off as a result of the war? And that made me think of, well, who is they? Uh, and this is something that's not really controversial, but complimentary, I think, to what you're saying. It wasn't that war in 65 in large part an example of uh, what Tip O'Neill said of uh, all politics being local? 
was the war, or at least brinkmanship that, left, that led to the war, seen by the Pakistan's military as in its interest, which is not necessarily the same as the long-run interest of uh, Pakistan. And if that's the case, has the military's role in Pakistan changed so that its influence is diminished or its perceived interests have changed so that it no longer has as much desire, if not for war, for brinksmanship in order to, to sustain its own uh, role? And to, would any such brinkmanship be primarily through nuclear or non-nuclear war, or to what extent would it be through uh, terrorism, destabilization, war, war, by, other, war by, uh, by other means? Thanks. Great. So now we have several questions, and these could become our like final remarks because we are approaching the time that we had set for, uh, for the end of the afternoon. Oh, yes. I will take the last three questions from those who already are on my list. So I've been... I've been putting down a list on the basis of the order in which I saw your hands in case. Uh, so I do know that there's a hand that was raised here. Did you have a question, Sabra? And then there's a question right there. Okay, so those will be the last three, but let's have an answer to this round. Oh, uh, yeah, let me comment on... Many pa philosophical on questions. Pakistan <laughs> Army. I think that um, I think the Army understands now after the catastrophe of Zia and other catastrophes that it can't run Pakistan. The trouble is it won't let anybody else run it, and I'm not quite sure whether the, other, the others are that competent in terms of running it. I once proposed to Zia that, uh, as a joke, right after, right after his coup, that uh, he invite a group of Indian politicians over to run their country. It was just a joke, but nobody laughed. It was a, they, they, they had no sense of humor whatsoever. So I, realize, I, you know, I think that they don't trust their own politicians. Actually, neither, neither does the Indian Army. They have the same attitude, which is essentially a British attitude towards politicians. But in Pakistan, they have means to stop the politicians from operating. But they can't run the country. You know, in a sense, they don't have the managerial and vision talent that they need to run a, run a modern state. And, but I, I, th I think the better ones understand that. They're not fools. They do understand. And, they, and I think, by and large, they keep, they, they, they're, they're going to avoid intervention unless they're actually really forced to do it. Any other comments? I would uh, add that the trajectory in Pakistan is positive. Um, you've had a couple of civilian governments change. Uh, you now have uh, a government in power that actually commands a majority. So it's not beholden to members of a coalition that are forcing it to do things against its will. I think what you're waiting to see happen is the arrival of leadership that is willing to take those, those leaps of faith domestically as well as with, with regional uh, partners that will benefit the country as a whole. Um, my own conversations with military leaders uh, over the decades indicate that they're quite prepared to accept orders from smart and bold civilian leaders. Uh, interestingly, uh, during a caretaker administration and Paul, you, you knew him well. When Moin Qureshi took over as prime minister, he, he had the highest <coughs> respect from the military. They, they would turn cartwheels for him when he suggested anything because they respected him and his ability and his desire to achieve change. And I think that, that is something that has to be earned. Uh, and I think you have a great opportunity with this particular government and then maybe with the next one you know, after, uh, after it finishes its term 
uh, and also with, with the, the change, the smooth transition from one army chief to the next, there will be new army chief in 2016. I think if all these things happen, uh, I think you, you, you see the possibility of a much more smoother trajectory. In answer to Polly's question, there was in 2006 a new education policy crafted under Musharraf, but Musharraf gave it up because of a deal with the Islamist <coughs> groups and didn't implement the policy. It exists and it would have changed the curriculum Changed, expunged all the Islamic references from all the other subjects except Islamiyat from the curricula. Uh, it never was done, and that still exists. It's on the web. You can go and read it. It's as good an education policy as any country in the world would want. Uh, you just now need the political will to implement it. I don't think the army is saying no. I don't think civil society is saying no. I think it's just the government. And interestingly, uh, it is economics that is at the heart of it because the people that benefit from all those lousy textbooks that have been used in the system are going to lose out because new textbooks will have to be written and they'll have to compete in order to be selected. So that, that is, that is at, at heart, it's economics. And I, I would just comment uh, on, again, on, on Polly's uh, question reference, uh, bringing along the publics. Yes, I think there's primacy to bringing along the elites, and if we look at the experience of Musharraf's now famous or infamous, depending on your viewpoint, uh, potential arrangement or, or concordance or something on Kashmir, which now other Pakistanis say, well, that's all fine, but he was off on his own and did not even build consensus within the elites. Whether that's true or not, I'm not a member of that elite, hard to tell, but the elites have to come first. However, given uh, particularly India's political democratic political dispensation and increasingly Pakistan's to avoid having a lot of political domestic opposition to any potential arrangement you'd have to bring along I would argue the publics as well to a large degree so that the opposition couldn't draw on those say oh how dare you uh, go to China Mr. Nixon look you've you've sold out America down for you know, our policy for decades and I think you'd have a similar problem if you did not have at least some groundwork laid uh, in the public arena as well as with elites. Before we go for the final round of questions, I just want to address one point. Um, I don't think, Shuja, uh, it's fair to compare the military's uh, support of and admiration for Moeen Qureshi uh, with their disdain for politicians. Uh, first of all, the Moeen Qureshi administration was brought in by the military. It was there for only three months. They just wanted it to get a package with the IMF sorted out. It took no major policy decision on issues such as Kashmir or uh, negotiations with India or, or, or with foreign powers. The problem with civilian regimes comes on three counts. One, of course, is corruption, and that's legitimate, fair enough. Uh, if society is unhappy with corruption or incompetence, that. But Nawaz Sharif's uh, leap towards India in 1999 uh, fell uh, uh, sort of uh, on the petard of, uh, of Cargill. And that certainly, the blame should lie where it lies. Uh, similarly, I think that the previous government uh, of which I served as ambassador, uh, there was enough evidence that there were things that were being done, not necessarily overtly, uh, but covertly. And if, if uh, there will be a very honest, competent government, I am not sure. I mean, even in case of Mohin Qureshi, there were issues raised about his citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. 
but because the military liked him, they didn't become issues. But if they didn't like him, then they would have become the major issues. We should admit to the fact that while Pakistan has a very open media, it's a media that is still very strongly influenced. And there's lots of evidence of that that has come out. Uh, they take a lot of direction from both the ISPR and the uh, ISI. And, and, and that is one way where I think instead of putting it in very linear fashion, incompetent civilians versus partly competent military, we should say it's much more complex, but that Steve's characterization that the military does not always let the civilians run the thing as they ought to, uh, I think that does, that does hold, but you and I can agree uh, to disagree on this. Well, we can disagree, but I do want to correct the facts. The Moin Qureshi administration uh, made economic reforms that are still extant in yeah, Pakistan. Yeah. They freed the state bank, created but, independence for it, and the military appreciated that. But none of, none of the issues yeah. that affect the military, which is initiatives towards India, foreign policy, I mean, were things that he took. The economy affects everyone in Pakistan, including the military. So let's not set up false uh, uh, arguments in this case. I think the, the basic point is not just the military, anyone in Pakistan, any of the pressure groups will accept a government that is willing to take risks, that is willing to make decisions. Uh, my point is that you have a government in Pakistan and in India that has economic strength. Uh, it's an opportunity for both of them to make those decisions that will help them. And uh, if the military or anyone opposes it, they will find the people opposing it. Uh, and I think that that is a danger um, that uh, that I think the military is aware of also. So uh, I, I think to characterize the fact that they liked Moin Qureshi, they liked Moin Qureshi because he did not have any longer term political life or, or ambitions. Uh, but they respected the fact that he made decisions that were going to set things right uh, and certainly laid the foundation for what has happened since then. So for 20 years, those decisions have not been altered. And the military does government. not ever try to affect the political uh, process no, by other means. No, I didn't say means. that. I didn't say that. So, uh, so, what so, I'm so, saying so is... The politicians do not have the free hand that they, they would like for a broader policy change. Is that a fair characterization? They, of course, the military is a very powerful political force in Pakistan, and that's recognized by everyone, including the military but uh, it still should not prevent the political system from maturing and graduating to greater autonomy. I think that Fair is enough. my point. Ma'am. Hi, thank you for your comments. Uh, Susan Becker from the IMF. On a total, well, sort of a lighter note, um, HBO did this quote-unquote comedy series called The Brink. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But um, if you haven't, you probably want to see it. And it was basically based on, you know, a nuclear situation in Pakistan with India and Israel. And if you haven't seen it, if you if you have, if you have any comments on it, we, I have seen it. But it was it was a lot of uh, laughs, and that's what it was meant to be. I don't think it was a political or a serious program. It was a comedy show, and it was a caricature. Of possible events in, in in the subcontinent and in the U.S. government, I hope uh, that uh, the Secretary of State does not behave like the Secretary of State uh, in that show. For those who have seen it, um, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Sabra Qureshi, and I'm an independent consultant. 
Um, I, I'd just like to take the ideal ideology uh, point a little further and also just pick up on what the previous question uh, Polly um, asked. And this question is to all the optimists and pessimists alike. <laughs> uh, you talked about um, how sort of there's been an indoctrination of all kinds of ideology on both sides of the border. And this has happened whether through the education system or in other ways. <coughs> We've also seen a sort of creeping to the right extreme right and all uh, points on the spectrum. But there's also been <clears throat> some, a lot of people-to-people -people diplomacy happening on the, uh, over the last 50 years. Civil society has grown, has become more active, has become more politically aware. So I'm just wondering, um, as I said to the optimists and pessimists, do you think that with the passage of time, the basic needs from civil society at large is going to surmount the kind of ideologies that are seeped into the mindsets of not just society, but the armed forces themselves on both sides. I think that's what uh, Shuja Nawaz said just a few minutes ago. If but, you think about it, that's exactly what he was saying, that if society as a whole thinks a certain way, then it will subsume and the military will also... But the problem, as you said, that the... Um, Musharraf expunged that from the education policy. The fact is, and the problem is, that both sides teach a very distorted history. Musharraf actually and didn't expunge it. He didn't he allow the policy to be implemented because right. he was in the process of making a deal with the Islamic parties right. in order to be able to wear his uniform and remain president. But the history is right. being taught. That, the right. histories being taught on both sides are also extremely distorted, and that's what's there's causing no a lot of the indoctrination, which has to, right. I, I guess, change. But at the same time, there is also a lot of people-to-people -people diplomacy that is... Um, Sabira, this was my point, that the trajectory <laughs> is positive. It's a question of carrying it forward, not letting it derail, and whether it is derailed by wild actions that are supported by government or that are launched by non-state actors, it doesn't matter. The point is, if there's going to be a derailment, then both countries are going to be affected. The gentleman right next to you. Yep. Final word. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Osman Tata. I'm in the uh, Office of Pakistan Affairs at the State Department. Uh, I have two questions for the panel in general. The first question... Uh, in regards to this uh, line you've drawn between 1965 to 1999 in terms of the ideology that drove the conflict. Um, have, would you say that that ideology... Could you hold the mic closer to you? Oh, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, would you say that that ideology that led to a similar, how you've characterized the conflict in 1999 is still prevalent today or has there been a change in the calculations on, on how if any... Obviously, we don't want any future conflicts, but... Uh, how they would make the calculus going forward in any such uh, uh, environment. Second question, both uh, Mr. Cohen and Colonel Gill, you've both pointed out that the America's influence in the region uh, has either has waned. Uh, Colonel Gill mentioned that uh, he doesn't see the United States' involvement in any uh, brokerage of any peace deals, as was the case in '99. Uh, he does not see that happening in the future, and you have said that this is more of China's role in the region. 
and that uh, the U.S.'s influence in that region has waned as such that they couldn't have the role that China would now be doing. And I was wondering why, and B, do you see uh, why that is the case and why you hold that view? And the second question linked to that is how that might change. Uh, what is it that has brought you to that perspective to see that our role here, uh, that we no longer have a positive influence in the region, both, and this is a question for both uh, uh, Colonel Gill and Mr. Cohen, thank you. Gentlemen, yeah. final words. Okay, very good. Uh, sadly, my hermit-like existence does not allow me to comment on the brink, uh, so I, I, <laughs> I can't offer anything on that, I apologize. Um, the uh, U.S. government's role, maybe I should clarify, because I, don't, I wouldn't want to suggest that the U.S. government has no role. I think, however, that the kind of leading role where, at least in my perception, in 1999, in the 2001-2002 crises, where you had this uh, U.S. cabinet level and presidential level involvement uh, and leading an international, very loose kind of coalition or, or con international consensus, I think the United States was really crucial. Uh, I have a hard time imagining that in the future the United States would be able to play that role just because of developments in the international, uh, on the international scene and the, the, uh, the way in which the United States is viewed. And even if we would desire to play that role, I'm not sure we would have the capacity to do so. Moreover, we might be distracted by other crises elsewhere that would take away top leadership. Because you, you, I mean, if we talk about 2001, from October 2001 to October 2002, I think Secretary Powell personally visited both India and Pakistan at least three times, possibly four. Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, Mr. Armitage, it was innumerable times. 1999, we had the, the personal intervention of the president with Nawaz Sharif flying here on the 4th of July, for heaven's sakes. So us being able to play that role in the future, I'm not so sure we could do it. Not, it's possible. I would not see the United States sort of ceding ground in some way to China in that respect. I think, however, that because China is, if we're comparing 2015 to 1965, China is a different country now than it was 50 years ago. Its role in the world uh, is evolving. In the past, China has preferred, so in 99 and in 2001, 2002, China's preferred to play a very uh, sub rosa, low-key role. Maybe now it would play a more uh, visible role as we've seen kind of tentatively vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan or vis-a-vis -vis trying to uh, convene Taliban leaders and or Taliban representatives of some ilk in Murray uh, two months ago, et cetera. So I, I'm not sure that there's a one-for-one one trade off there, but the, the dynamic has shifted in my view. So that's maybe a, a further, a, a better elaboration of what I was trying to communicate in tiny telegraphic points earlier. Shuja, would you like to say something? Um, I think the U.S. has lost its leverage in, in the region because it doesn't have a regional policy. It had an Afghanistan policy. It, it had a separate Pakistan policy. Now it has an India policy. Uh, so uh, within the region, this is clearly understood. And I think that, that has reduced its ability. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, at the same time, China is developing a regional network. Uh, creating economic and, and other entities that that straddle the boundaries in such a way that uh, both India and Pakistan now want to be part of some of those networks. Uh, so till there is a champion for looking at the region as a region, and in my view, as a region that is going to guide the, the growth of, of global 
the global economy um, because of the links between India and China and China and Central Asia and Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, you're not going to have an effective U.S. policy. We're going to have to wait, I think, for the next president of the United States to craft such a policy because there isn't one now and there isn't a champion for such a policy at this time. Professor Cohen, final word? I agree with that entirely. If you do, if you do a Venn diagram of American interests, Chinese interest, Indian interest, and actually Iranian interest also, now that the U.S.-Iran relationship has changed, they converge on two things, or well, three things. One is economic growth and, and development, which is more important to them than to us. Uh, secondly, the stability of Pakistan and the future of Afghanistan. India has a vital interest in the stability of Pakistan. He won't say it, but it does, and, and also, and that's dependent on what's happened in Afghanistan. So does China, and so does the United States. So I think we, we should, uh, as a policy prescription, I say look at the areas where you have agreement with another country, not where you have disagreement with another country. Then you get, you, I think you get further. That's what Nixon did with Mao. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming, and thank you for this brilliant panel, uh, Professor Stephen Cohen, Mr. Shuja Nawaz, and Colonel Jack Gill. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.